This episode of the pod wouldn't be possible without the support of Alex, Sammy and the team at Shearwater Health and Fitness. Everyone needs a little bit of help and support at times, especially when it comes to health and wellness. Not only is Shearwater Health and Fitness supporting the Talk Hard podcast, but more importantly, they're committed to providing Shearwater and the surrounding community with a premium quality health and wellness facility. If you've been looking to take the first step or even the next step in your health and wellness journey, they provide a full-class timetable, 24-7 gym, infrared sauna, Normatec recovery boots and a massage therapist. Something for everyone, whether you're a high-performance athlete, mum, dad or just someone wanting to help be the best version of yourself. Call in and see them at 24 Shearwater Boulevard, which is right next door to the IGA, or you can check them out on Instagram and Facebook for all the details. This week's something different, as we had the privilege to chat with Olveston boy Sean Cox, who spent the last 15 or so years working and travelling all over the world. For anyone who hasn't travelled, and even those who have, it's a great insight into living the jet-setting lifestyle, what the life's like, and also some unbelievable stories about great things he's seen. This includes Anzac Day at Gallipoli, some very hairy stories including earthquakes, he was locked up for 16 days in a foreign country, and driving through gunshots and protesters. We also get some hilarious stories of things that could only happen on the road. Sean also opens up on tough times he's had, including his stepmother's battle with MND, which took a toll on him and the family, and how he manages this while being away being the first person in a foreign country to be diagnosed with COVID and how he worked his way through the death of a co-worker under his management. These things took a massive toll on him and he gives great insights and advice on how he dealt with them and some tips for others. The editing skills got a good going over in this one, so if you can pick up any power tools in the background. Sean's such a good bloke, he joined us in the middle of renovating an orphanage. That's what we're going to say anyway. Talk hard! like of course I'm not going to walk again like that's just the reality isn't it and the doctor that rang mum said oh we've saved your son's life and I remember looking up and just saying <laughs> that wasn't out and he looked at me and he said no it wasn't but I didn't want to give you not out because you're my son and I said fuck me dad I just remember her telling us your daughter's got um, leukemia you're in school oh we swapped class a couple times who's cluier out of the two of you both got the same smartness <laughs> not real smart at all <laughs> If you are dedicated to something, as long as it's safe and it's not hurting anyone else, I don't think anything should hold you back. Keep pushing forward, you know, days get tough sometimes. You know, it does turn around, you just got to fight for it a little bit. I was like, why can't we be that 1% that survived? She said to me then, she goes, you were more like me than I ever realised. The Talk Art Podcast with Brendan Hinkson. Sean Cox, welcome to the Talk Art Podcast. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, Good to be here. Been a long time coming. We've sort of spoken over the text messages for for a little bit. I know you're an avid listener of the of the podcast. You're actually one of the first people that shot me a message to boost me confidence up when I've got my first couple out. And you said, "Oh, this is great." And I thought, "Well, if it's going all over the world, that must be a good start." <laughs> yeah, mate. It's good. Uh, good first um, episode. Obviously, my relationship with Snapper and uh, us growing up together. So I was like, very intrigued to yeah, listen to it. It was uh, it was good. I was surprised he actually did it. To be honest with you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, you seem pretty relaxed and uh, enjoyed it as well. So yeah. you might be a bit more relaxed than I am. I'm a bit nervous, but anyway. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be fine, mate. You'll soon loosen up. And I know that you've come equipped with a lot of ammunition and some good stories. So I reckon that's going <laughs> to loosen us up. So obviously for, for anyone that doesn't know your story, like where are we talking to you from right now, mate? Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the Canary Islands in Spain, off the yep. west coast of Africa. I've been living here since uh, September last year. Yep. Um, so yeah, um, before that I was living in Austria. Yep. Um, and yeah, so uh, work moved me here, and then I finished up with work last like, at the start of the year, and just been cruising around here ever since. Really. 
Yeah. Uh, if you like, mate, it's probably a lifestyle that a lot of people would like. But that's <laughs> that's basically what um you know what what your story does focus on because you've been travelling since about two thousand and seven. I I looked. Is that about right? Yeah, two thousand and eight. Uh, so we, I mean, two thousand and seven. I think it was around October two thousand and seven. I was uh on the phone with Trent Graham. I was up in living up in Queensland, and um, he said, "Oh, I've taken a, I've got a year leave off school next year." So I'm going to go travelling for a year. And I was like, I'm a bit overworked. I'll come with you. I've seen, well, not counting airports, 53 countries now. Um, and I know there's, like, I've got a lot of mates that have probably done a lot more than me. Um, but for me, I, I never really thought I'd leave Tassie, uh, <laughs> let, let alone let alone uh, go and see the world. But it's it's been one of the best things I've done and changed me a lot and my outlook on life and, you know, perspective on different things and sort of got a bit more open. Probably, uh, le- yeah, well, learn a lot as well, a lot about, about myself and, a, and about different cultures. So it's, uh, yeah, it's one of the best, <laughs> one of the, I've spent a lot of money on it, but uh, yeah, one of the best spends I've ever done. So, yeah. yeah. And I know you, you you come home quite regularly, mate. How do you come back conversing with us common folk that all we've got to talk about you know, how, how Devonport went against Alveston on the weekend and how cold it is and we defrosted our windscreens? And what do you sort of talk to people down here about now that you're such a worldly man? Uh, it's funny because I always, especially if I go home in the winter, I always mention to Dad that how cold it is. And, like, and he's like, I've just spent six months in the snow and uh, get to Tassie and I was like, you get that sour westerly blown, <laughs> I just start, start whinging. We'll obviously get into, you know, your story, but it, it reads a bit like a um, like a series of The Amazing Race, the amount of different countries and things <laughs> that, you've, that you've been to. But we'll just, obviously, we'll go back to the start um, to begin with, mate. So you grew up down here. So you grew up in Alveston? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep. Alveston boy. Um, yep. Grew up there and then made a big move to Devonport. <laughs> <laughs> the big smoke. Yeah, and uh, and then from there, sort of uh, took off up, up to Mackay eventually in 2004. So how, how did it actually come about? So you said you moved up to, to Mackay. So how did um, travel sort of come into your life? It actually, cricket actually led to a bit of like, the idea of it. Um, I played a couple of years at Don and won two flags at Don. And with Jeremy Jones was coach the first year and he's the one that got me there. And, um, and then he went away. And he went away overseas, over to England playing. And he kept into me saying, you need to come over here. Like, it's going to suit you. And, uh, and then I went and played. before The year before I left, I went and played at Alveston. And we played off in the second grade grand final and lost to Devonport. And um, Brian Lynch was, I was talking to him about it. And he said, well, if you want to go, sort of, you know, let me know. Because a lot of them boys had been over there and done that, you know. And so I went up to Mackay to earn some money, really. And... And to go before before going anywhere, um, but I'd, I'd retired from footy because I not be, just because I was always injured, but because I was pretty bad at it. And um, <laughs> when I got up to Mackay, like I got to my accommodation where I'd booked like this the rental that I booked, and it was bloody terrible. Like it was even the old man because the old man drove up with me, and he's like, he goes, I wouldn't even let the dog stay in here. Jesus, right? Eh? So, uh, oh, it was horrible, and. Um, so we went, uh, went and watched. There was one game of footy in town in Mackay, and we went out to watch that. And it was Baker's Creek Tigers versus Eastern Swans. And Eastern Swans had a couple of some boys playing. Um, Troy Stevens was coach. Um, Nigel Dent was playing there, 
And uh, I didn't know at the time, but Mick Hodgetts was coaching. Uh, he used to play for Bernie. He was coaching uh, one of the other teams as well. And we stand there watching the footy, and Dad goes, what do you reckon? I said, oh, yeah, it's not a bad standing. And then there was a little fella, little Aboriginal fella called Nama. Um, said, oh, do you play a bit of footy, do you, mate? And I said, oh, no, nah, not really. I said, I've, I've retired. I've just moved up here, and I've even left, I left all my gear at home. I was like, I didn't bring anything up. And he's like, you sure you don't want to go? And I said, yeah, positive. Any- anyway, him and he started getting on the, the fizz with Dad, and uh, I was driving, so I wasn't drinking. And them two got on it all through the game. And by the end of the game, he had me a place to live and, uh, uh, like, met, met, met the whole footy club, basically. And, yeah, he goes, just come to training on Tuesday night and you don't have to play. And, was, of course, once I got to training, then I started playing again as well, like, so I played two uh, two reserves games, and then uh, I think it was my my second senior. Well, my, actually, my first starting like senior game without playing twos before it. And uh, yeah, it was only three games in, and basically it was the first contest. Oh, well, we got the first two minutes of the game. Just took a mark as a leading out. Took a mark. Guy pushed me in the air and I landed with my, the ball sort of up under my armpit and he landed on my back and squeezed my shoulder out. And, yeah, um, right. Out. And I tried to play on, but I couldn't even couldn't run or anything like that. And then I finally went to the hospital. I said, oh, yeah, you dislocated it, but it's gone back in. But like four or five days later, I think it was a Thursday night, I went to training and I wasn't, I just sort of went to see the boys. And like one of the trainers just said to me, he goes, your shoulder still looks really low. Like, have you, you know, you've been back to the doctors. I said, well, it's funny. I said, I'm, I can't sleep. I can't do anything. And so they took me back to the to the hospital and it was still partially dislocated like five days Jesus. later. They never put it back in properly. And, yep. um, yeah, and that sort of led to a few other troubles and made it sort of, you know, two or three months again before I could work. Yeah. So I got back to playing footy at the end of the season. Played cricket that summer, but I couldn't. Like, it was like fourth grade, 35 yep. over cricket. Um, yep. I could only play every second week because of work. Um, and I didn't enjoy it much at first. Like, the first game, I, I, first game we got a bus to play our first game. And I was the only one not drinking before the game. Yeah, right, before the game. <laughs> yeah. So all the boys would disown me. Like, they said, you're not a fourth grade unless you drink. And I said, well, I'm not drinking before I bat. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so, like, it took me a while to, <laughs> to get accepted into the fourth grade team. Yeah. That's for sure. Cause so, what, you had to start drinking, did you, to get accepted? Or Well, the the day, <laughs> the day I uh, – they fought, well, one of the guys come over and tapped, patted me on the back and said, you're finally a fourth grader. I, um, I was massively hung over from the night before. And yeah. I was in, sitting in first slip. And as our opening bowler ran in the bowl, the first ball, I turned my back to the batsman and started throwing up in slips. <laughs> and, uh, and the boys just clapped me. The boys just clapped me. He's like, he's finally arrived. Imagine how good they could have been if they weren't half pissed when they walked out. <laughs> so how many years did you stay in Mackay then before you started travelling proper? Yeah, I was up there until 2000, oh, end of 2007. Yep. Um, and then... Obviously, like I said, Trent, talking with Trent, we went away in 2008, but I came back in the September 2009 and went back again for another eight or nine months and just worked as well. Yep. So just under four years, really, I spent up yep. there. So yeah. where did you go to? Where was your first overseas 
expedition? So 2006, after I had my shoulder reconstruction, um, we went to, my first trip overseas was to Thailand. We, like a few of us went over to Thailand for two weeks. Yep. Um, which was a bit of <laughs> pretty big eye opener. I reckon. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely different. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, like it was just a bit of a just a bit of fun, really. And like we, I mean, we did we drank a lot, but we did a lot lot of things as well. You know, like went and saw a lot of things and and did a lot of things. Like it wasn't just um, like a footy trip or anything like that. Um, but we we managed to see a lot of like we we were both, I think we went to Bangkok and Phuket and like did a fair bit around Bangkok, did a fair bit around Phuket, like just out on boats mainly, just going to different islands and all that sort of thing and just exploring around there, which was pretty nice. Um, Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So that was the first um, trip overseas that I'd I'd done. So your first actual overseas, like to to live for a time and work and stuff. So was that in, that was 2007, was it? Uh, So... It was meant to be like uh, start of or January two thousand eight, um, yep. but our v- mine and Trent's visas took a little bit of time to come through, um, so we ended up leaving start of March. Yep. Um, and and in the end, a, a guy I lived with up in Mackay came with us as well. Um, him and Trent had never met each other. We they met at the airport when we were leaving from Melbourne. Um, we went to again. We went to Thailand for a month, and we just backpacked around there. Yep. Um, just in guest houses, doing it on the cheap. Um, completely different sort of um, trip to what the first one was over there, and and until we went to Koh Samui, and that was I think that was the only place that we got a hotel um, yep. where we and we went to a full moon party from there and that sort of thing, and then from there we uh, we flew to Frankfurt. We met two uh, two German girls in in Koh Samui, and one of them. Um, gave us her apartment when we got to Frankfurt. She just moved out of her apartment to a boyfriend's place and let us have the, have the apartment Jesus. for a week, yep. which was, yeah, oh, amazing. Like, so we just based there and started off there, and that's where we started in Europe. Yep. We, uh, when we got to London, we had, we had no idea where we were going to live. We actually um, ended up dossing with um, Aaron Cookberry um, and Matthew Beattie, like guys from the coast. And Jenny Leach and Lou Bennett were there as well. Like, it, like it, they were on the. We're all on. We're four of us. Uh, five of us. Myself, Cart, and, and Trent, and Lou and Jenny were all on the floor in the lounge room at, at Barry's place and Beatty's yeah. place. So he sort of. We just contacted him. and He goes, "Yeah, no problem. You can stay with us." And then, so we just. That's where we crashed with no idea how long it was going to take to get a place to live or anything like that. Which yeah. for me was a little bit unsettling. Like, you know, nowhere to leave your gear and. And um, when you're DOS, you sort of you don't want to be in the way of people too much either, like because you know you got five they got five people dosing in their lounge room, like you can sort of get you know get sick of it pretty quickly. And so, like, but, did you have like a working visa? Like, did you have to find work eventually? Is that like again, someone who's never travelled like that? Like, I'm probably going to ask you a lot of stupid questions, but how does it work? Do you have a certain amount of time to get a get a gig somewhere? Or yeah, so I had to work. We had a 12-month work holiday visa for the UK. Yep. So you're allowed to work 12, 12 months. You're allowed to stay there for two years, but you're only allowed to work 12 months out of the two years. That's what right. it used to be. It's yep. changed now. I, it was a bit harder for me to get because I, I'd lost my licence strength driving when I was just out of my peas. Like, um, 
So they had to do a couple of extra checks. Um, but we've got it eventually. Um, yep. With the UK one, there's no time frame when you get to, when you have to get there to, um, once you're there. Um, the Canadian one was a bit different. Like once you got approved, you had a, you had twelve months to get into Canada. Yep. And if you didn't get in, if you didn't get in within twelve months to activate your work visa, you weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed in. So, so yep. we had to get 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 that within mind that we had to be in Canada within twelve months. So yeah. Um, another thing that you told me that, that that's of interest to me is um, when you were over in uh, London there, you travelled to Turkey and you went to Gallipoli for Anzac Day. Like I don't think there'd be many Australians that wouldn't. Want to have that on their bucket list at some stage, or what? What was that like for you? Uh yeah, that was probably still to this day the like most most meaningful trip I've taken. I reckon. Yep. Um, was that always something you wanted like, to do? It was like I was always brought up. Dad had the RSL club in Alveston, Um yep. and uh, I was always brought up with that. You know that real that Anzac days important. Anzac's important and Anzac Day is really important part of the uh, day of the year. Yeah, and um, always showed our respects. Always went to the service. Um, as I got older, started going to the dawn services and that sort of thing. Um, and it was the first year. The year we went was the first year they banned alcohol. At it. I could see because the year before, like it was just left in an absolute mess. You saw it oh, on the right news on. and all that sort of thing. And yeah, and and you sit there and you sit there all night. So we were sitting there, and Andrew Denton was sort of MC of the night. Yeah, and um, sit there all night, like I was. You're in like thermals and like jackets, and sitting in a sleeping bag, and you're sort of sitting there. And he's sort of um, getting guests up on stage and talking about different things and and that sort of thing, and like got old war vets and showed a few sort of like snippets and that sort of thing. And you could see why people would just get drunk and get out of hand and I for me like I think it was it meant more not being able to drink at it like yeah and it would have been nice to have one or two like just to socialize with people but I think yeah just keep you involved in what was going on on stage and that sort yeah. of thing because you sit there all night until the dawn service starts and then you you do the dawn service with all with the Turkish Australians and the Kiwis yeah and then and then after that you separate and then the Australian we had our own service up at Lone Pine Kiwis had their own service and the and the Turkish had their own service as well. So as you go up to yeah, you you go up to Lone Pine, like you see where the Australians landed on the beach, like the beach was tiny. There's still there were still bullet shells there. Yep. Um, you know, and, and the hill they had to go up, like it was it was a zigzag path for us, but what they were expected to get up was, you know, with bullets flying at them, like they didn't plan it real well, did they? No, no, they they didn't at all. Like, and then you get up to Lone Pine, and and you know you've been awake all night, um, and they do the Australian, and then we walked around and we had a look at all the tombstones and that, and like, the seventeen, eighteen year old kids, nineteen year old kids, you know, and I was just, I just kept thinking like, there's not a chance in hell I could have done this at when I was seventeen or eighteen, you know, or if we were thrown into that these days, would we, be, as 17, 18-year-old kids, be able to do it? Like, yeah. it, you know, and they actively wanted to go over there and help. But when you see the trenches, the so-called trenches, they're not much more than a culvert, what the Australians are in. And and the uh, Turkish had full, full-blown full tunnels and, you know, it was, they were, they were ready. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, you listen to the story as the guide sort of went around and you sort of, I mean, you've heard it all before, but the fact they'd stop and like trade cigarettes for some food and all that sort of thing, get rid of the, the injured and the, and the dead and that sort of thing, call the truce for an hour or two. And then, right, oh, truce is over and go back straight back to it. Like, is it just sort of blew my mind. And mm. the one thing I did notice with the Turkish, like, they were very friendly towards Australians and the Kiwis. Like, they were, you know, like, held us, they had a good, lot of respect for us and obviously Australians for them. And, um, it was, yeah, it's definitely probably still to this day the best thing I've done, I reckon. Um, and so back to this amazing race then, mate. So where, where did you go from, <laughs> uh, from London? What was the, what was your next steps from there? So yeah, I worked worked about six weeks, I think it was, and then yep. uh, Trent and I, I went on a Kentucky tour around Europe. Yep. Which I, I would never do again, but um, <laughs> why is that? You didn't enjoy I, it? Or? <laughs> no, I loved it, loved it, yep. but it, was, it and it was very structured, and you got to, got to see the sights. It was just too hard on the body. <laughs> oh right, <laughs> um, no liver copter. No, you're on the you're on the bus. You're always on the go, and I just sort of as you sort of did that, like I, I really enjoy now like looking into stuff and seeing stuff that I want to do and planning my own trips. So like if one, I'm too old for a Kentucky anyway, but if you, as a first thing to do travel wise, it was really good because we knew we were going to see all the sites and have fun. And and we had an, our bus was, was so good. Like the people on our bus were amazing and, and we all sort of stuck together and had a fun time. And, and, um, but you know, saw a lot of Europe. It's just, it's always it was only one or two days here, so you're just getting into it, and then you got to leave again. And and so, like now these days, I like sort of looking at it. And if I decide I'm in a place and want to stay a few days longer, then I just stay and yep. and that sort of thing. So, but like I said, I think we did 13, 14 countries in a month or something like that. Um, yeah, it was pretty solid, and went down to the Greek, including the Greek islands and that sort of thing in that as well. And yeah, um, so that was really good. And then um, there was a, one of the other good thing, really good things we did that year. We went to the the cheese rolling festival in Gloucester. Oh, yeah. is that when they roll a big block of cheese down the hill? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, so we we took off from uh, London on the Friday night, driving down. There was me, myself, Trent, uh, Aaron Cook, Matthew Beatty, and <laughs> and Carts, and we got to Bath, and we hadn't booked any accommodation. And we went to the first hostel we found, and I said, there's no chance of getting accommodation this weekend. It's a long weekend, right? So you're not going to get accommodation anywhere. And so we're all sitting in the bar going, well, what are we going to do? We're going to have to drive somewhere and find somewhere to stay. And then, like, the guy behind the bar goes, look, we've got staff, a staff room upstairs with a couple of mattresses in it. If you guys spend a few dollars over the bar, you can just stay upstairs. Yeah. So That was probably going to happen anyway. (laughs) So that's what we did. And we ended up with all the staff having a party at the, <laughs> up above after everything had shut that night. Yeah. And, and then the next morning we sort of drove off to Stonehenge and had a look at that. And, and then we went to Cheltenham where we actually had accommodation booked and um, met up with some of Berry's and, uh, and Beatty's friends and uh, had a night there and then went to the cheese rolling festival. And like, we were talking about who's going to do it and sort of me and, me and Matt Beatty sort of, oh, yeah, we might do it. I looked at the hill and I was like, there's not a chance in hell I'm doing that. Oh, it's nuts. Yep. It's like a roll of nine pound roll of Gloucester cheese and everyone that tells you like the cheese isn't even any good. Yeah. And um 
And the person that won the first race broke his leg, but he's getting carried off on the stretcher, holding the cheese up, saluting the crowd. <laughs> like it was wet and cold, and and um, and like as soon as you fall, there's no stopping. Like they just they just ragdoll the whole way down. Like I've never yeah. seen anything like it. It was absolutely nuts. I thought you just stand at the top and roll it, and that's it. Yeah, so, no, someone stands at the top and rolls it. As soon as they let go of it, you chase the cheese down. The first one down wins the cheese. <laughs> so everyone's so, chasing, then, chasing little, for one block of cheese. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So and then and then they had the local rugby team down the bottom. Anyone that overshoots the bottom gets tackled by them. Oh no! <laughs> so you're going to break an arm or leg anyway? Yeah, well, I think one bloke got one down, ran down, and he got down unscathed, and then he just got absolutely smashed by like some dude that obviously played front row, and he ended up getting taken off the stretcher from that. Oh, Jesus. It, it was it was just organised chaos, really. As soon as you lose your feet, you're gone. There's no stopping it because the yep. pace you build. <laughs> so, what was what was your next move after that, mate? Um, so we planned to we go to go to America, but before we went, we went up to Scotland. Yep. Um, did a bit of a tour around Scotland. Um, we, I think, we busted up to to Edinburgh, and then we hired a car and drove around Scotland and went up. Went and looked at St Andrews. Like St Andrews was one for me. I wanted to go and look at the golf course, um, and just travelled around there for four or five days and enjoyed that. And then um, me and Trent also went to Foo Fighters at Wembley Stadium with eighty six thousand people. So that was sort of mind blowing for me. It was a nightmare yeah. getting up, getting home afterwards, but um... <laughs> it'd be a bit of a bottleneck, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh yeah, it was. And then yeah, after those those things, we went to. We flew out for the States. Um, we got to America and flew to LA. Um, yep. We bought a car in uh, in the Valley. Like a, We paid $1,200 for this what's, uh, Plymouth Voyager, it was, a 1990 Plymouth Voyager, which is basically either like a Mitsubishi Nimbus or a, <laughs> or a Datsun Prairie. I was going to say, she would have been a hell of a beast, but fine, that's what oh, I was Oh mate, <laughs> the paint was stripping off it. It was like <laughs> it had Arizona plates. It like it, and um, and we when we bought it, and uh, we drove it from the valley back to where we were staying in um, uh, in Venice Beach, and we decided to go surf, and we got some surfboards from the um, hostel, loaded them in, and we're driving like down to the beach and lost all brakes. <laughs> <laughs> we get there. Get down. Luckily, it was all flat, but it was like we got no brakes, boys. <laughs> had, didn't have a drop of brake fluid, and all the all the lines had split. So we had to, there's a there's a mechanics just around the corner from where we were staying. We and look, we need this fixed by tomorrow if we can. And he like I think he said something like four hundred bucks. I said, mate, we're not paying four hundred bucks. I said he's a mechanic. I'm a mechanic. I said well, we'll just go to we'll just go and buy this shit ourselves and a few tools and fix it ourselves. And he come down to two hundred. So that we got it fixed then and there, and and then we drove out to Vegas with it, and um, yeah, started. I think in that in that car total, we did sixteen thousand k's in about six weeks. Bloody hell! And so obviously, because the fact that it didn't have any brakes, you didn't really give it a good going <laughs> over before you bought it. Then, oh, we had a bit of a look, but <laughs> it, it did it did well to make it that many k's, then, didn't it? Oh, it did like, and we. We had to carry uh, had to carry five liter. We had to carry a five liter drum of oil with us everywhere we went. Just top up yeah. the engine oil. Yeah. But other than that, she didn't she didn't miss a beat after that. Like <laughs> drove out to Vegas, had a few days there, um, and um, and then we went from there out to the Grand Canyon, um, which was which was amazing. 
And then we went from there down to, we were going to go through Yosemite, but we couldn't get over because of the snow. So we went to Lake Tahoe and out, out to San Francisco after that. San Francisco was, um, that was really nice. Like it was, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, just to see that fog come in. We went to Alcatraz um, and did all the sights. And then we were, we were sort of on the Saturday night, Andy Carter, the guy that I lived with that come, started the travel off with us, he just sort of, he just said to us, he goes, look, guys, I'm going to try and get back with uh, with my ex. She's in New York, so I'm going to go to, to New yep. York. And um, I said, hey, when are you going to go? And he goes, well, I'm going to fly out tomorrow. Yep. And I just looked at Trent and I said, look, I said, well, we got no plans, have we? And he's like, no. I said, well, fuck it, let's drive there. Yeah. So we we packed up the car the next day and drove 5,000 k straight across to, um, to New York. And um, so we were there for four or five days and like, me and two were talking, what do we do now? I said, look, I've got a, a friend I met in Thailand in 2006. She lives in Halifax on the east coast of Canada. I said, I'll message her and see if we she wants us to come up and visit her. And I messaged her and I said, look, I'm in New York, my mate, blah, 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 going to come up. She goes, oh, great, when are you coming? I said, we're on our way. We'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> so so we drove up there and... Um, Drove all the way to Halifax in 2009. I went out skiing with one of the guys I'd met there. I was working with. We went across this run, and so I've gone to go down, go down, drop into it, and I got pushed off my line, and um, I went over a bit of a drop. Then I landed. I landed flat on my feet, but then I flipped, and and I landed flush on my shoulder. And I, at the time, I thought I dislocated. It was my other shoulder. I thought I dislocated my shoulder, but I'd fully separated my shoulder, and like, like I, I felt it, like it, I felt it snap, like it was a horrible feeling. Yeah. And then I just sort of sat up there, and and they got sort of ski patrol come down, and and I was, you know, I was a bit in shock, and and I was sitting there, and like the guys, like, and to his credit, like he's, you know, tested my back, and my neck, and he said, "Is everything okay with that?" I said, "There's no pain there. It's just my shoulder." And um. So gave me some morphine and they put me in the little <laughs> in the little uh, stretcher and we're gonna ski me in, ski me down. And it was pretty rough where we had to ski out. Well the straps broke in the, on on the stretcher and yeah. launched me out of the stretcher. Well, so you landed on the deck again, did you? Yeah, it landed on the deck again. <laughs> and um and took a gash out of the leg at the same time, so I had to get stitches as well. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you're not busted up quite enough uh-huh. yet. We just better smack you around <laughs> a bit more yet. Which could only happen to me. Like it's, I've never seen anyone get taken down and that happen. Like just, yeah, it was just like. <laughs> and um, got down there and they said, "Yep, you've got a full separation of your shoulder," um, and just sent me home. And and the next day I wake up and I was, I was like, obviously my shoulder's still sore, but. When I stood up and I went to go to the bathroom, I was like, I just got this really, really bad migraine. And I've never had a migraine in my life. And I got to the bathroom and I started throwing up and I was like, oh, this is not good. So I went out on the, onto the couch and I laid down and I sort of all eased off. Got up again. As soon as I stood up again, I started feeling sick and, and nauseous, nauseous and, and got this massive, like, this, like severe pain in the head. So I went back to the to, um, to the hospital in Whistler and they said, oh, you know, you probably picked up a virus here and you're dehydrated. So they put me on a drip 
and uh, kept me in there for a few hours, sent me out. Uh, I got picked up by my boss at the time and we're driving down the road. And I said, Brian, you need to stop. And he pulled over and I started throwing up again. And he goes, do you want to go back? I said, no, just take me home. And, and then the next morning I woke up. Again, the pain was so bad in my head. But I went back into hospital and they they said, look, you're not drinking enough water. I said, I am drinking enough water. I said, I said, how come the pain is only there when I'm vertical? When I'm horizontal, I have no pain. Yeah. And um, and they put me on a drip again, and then they went to send me out. And then as we were walking out, I sort of, I basically fell over, fell down, and uh, as I was walking out the door because of the pain. And that's when they sort of started thinking something was really wrong. And and they they said, look, we're going to send you to Squamish, which is a town between uh, Vancouver and and uh, Whistler. So they put me in an ambulance, and off I went down to to Squamish. And as soon as I got into Squamish, the doctor there, he just had, his mindset was completely different. He said, do you remember hitting your head? I said, no. Nah. He said, do you have any pain in your back? I said, I didn't. I said, start to ache a bit now, but I just thought it's because I'm laying down all the time. And he just, he goes, look, I have a theory. Next thing, straight in, he goes, you're in the ambulance, you're going to Vancouver. He goes, I think you're breaking your back. And he said, and I also, also think there's something else has happened, but I'll wait for the neurosurgeon to do the, the test before we even contemplate that. So got down to, to Vancouver to uh, Lionsgate Hospital. It took me straight in for an MRI, a CT scan, x-rays. And when it came out, I'd, um, when I landed flat on my feet, I'd got like compression fractures in six vertebrae. So I uh, fractured my T6 to T11. So all six vertebrae had fractures in them. But the impact of when I'd flipped, it tore the lining around my spinal column. And so I was leaking spinal fluid. So when I was stand, when I was upright, spinal fluid was leaking and it wasn't holding enough pressure to hold my brain in the right position in my head. So my brain was slumping in my head and that's what was giving me the migraines. Yep. And, um, and I, he goes, look, I said, so what do we do? And he's like, well, normally in time, these things fix themselves. He said, but, he said, there's a possibility of surgery. And he said, it's pretty complicated. He goes, he goes, what do you do for a living? I said, oh, you know, I work on machinery. And he's like, I'll put it in some way you can understand. He goes, I'll take blood out of you. I'm going to inject it in your spinal column. It should work like stop leak. And I said, okay. And I said, just do that then. And he goes, no, we're not doing that without someone from your family here. And I said, oh, I don't really want to tell the family because <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to worry. thousands of miles away. Yeah. He goes, well, we can't do the surgery unless you've got someone. I said, well, what if I get one of my mates down from Whistler? He goes, no, it has to be family. Eventually, I rang Dad, and I found this out later, but when he got off the phone, Wendy, my my stepmother, told told me years later that she goes, that was the first time she'd ever seen Dad sort of scared. Like, Mm. So he sort of understood the the gravity of the situation, and and he rang Mum, and like within two minutes, my phone was ringing, and Mum was crying, and... <laughs> yep. Exactly what I didn't want to deal with. Yeah, but you know, like, because for me, I, I felt pretty okay. Like, other than that, and I, I was like trusted the neurosurgeon, the neurologist that I saw, and and I wasn't too, you know, too scared or anything like that. Like, I'd had surgeries before and that sort of thing, and injuries before, and so I sort of probably didn't think it realizes it was as serious as what it was. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I never ended up having, they gave me three weeks to get to 15 degrees without any pain, um, in my head, 
which I got to, and and I never ended up having to have the surgery. It ended up repairing itself. So, yeah. So what was next for you after that? Then, mate, obviously a bit of a recovery period. And then you're on the move again. Yeah, yeah, I was. I, I had a look on when look through some things, and I I skied again late February, but I shouldn't have been. Like the physio was dead against it, yep. and I just went up for a run, and and I was so scared that I. It was like I'd never been on skis before. So I had one day and I, I didn't ski for a little bit longer and yep. just slowly eased my way back into it and yep. um, got a bit of confidence and got hurt again, did an ankle. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Probably karma telling you that you got into it too quick. So, yeah, did the got back into skiing. I even had a crack at snowboarding um, just for a day. Um, and then the summer came around and we, we did a bit of a road trip down through to Seattle and – to Yellowstone, which saw the first grizzly bear I've ever seen. Yeah, um, didn't get too close, did you? No, it actually, it actually had a kill as well. It had killed a, a, an elk or something, and it was a heat like. So we got got close enough to zoom in on with the SLR, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, like I mean, in in Whistler, we you saw bears everywhere, like just the black bears, and they after a while, you just sort of. You know, like you just ride past and don't pay them any attention. It's like seeing a kangaroo, I guess. Yep. But at first, like I was just, my mind was blown seeing seeing bears and like mm. it's, yeah. You know, like people worry about Australia and all the things that can kill you in Australia. Like how often do you see a snake? You don't see a snake too often, but I tell you, what, you can come across a bear anywhere over there. Like anywhere there's yep. woods. Yep. Like and them to me more them. You had like um, mountain lions um, and that sort of thing, like that are known in the area. So there's a lot more that can kill you over there than what can in Australia, I, I think. So, and a lot of things yeah, in but, Australia will just kill you out of self defence too. Like over there, they're actual man eaters, aren't they? They, they want you. Oh yeah, yeah, the, and you know, like especially if you come across a bear that's got cubs. Yeah, like there's no, there's no uh, caution. It's just <laughs> they, they just go, they just go, yeah. So, yep. But in Yellowstone, like you've got to be, we're in the tents and you lock all your all your food, anything that has calories, basically, all your food goes into the into a lockup, um, steel lockup, and you put a padlock on it in the in the national park because any bears will just um, anything they'll sniff anything out, any food out, like they're they're unbelievable. Like anything that's got calories, like we even got told to put our toothpaste. In. Shit, yeah, right, huh? And no, I, I don't think I slept the first night because I could just hear like things walking around the park, and I don't know if it was bears or not. But oh shit! I <laughs> reckon. <laughs> don't come so, into my tent, thanks. How scary is it in this day and age? How much we rely on modern technology. It's not till your phone dies or the Wi-Fi or power goes off that you realise you'd be lost without it. Well, recently my phone decided in its old age to die and stop charging, and on a weekend no less. So what do you do? Rather than waiting to speak to the network providers or retail outlets, which can be painful within itself, give Brad or Katie a call at Greenies Apple Repairs. That's what I did, and they had my old phone as good as new in hours. Greenies take care of iPhones, iPods, iPads, and pretty much everything else, and they won't cost you an arm and a leg. So next time you're stuck back in the dark ages with no technology, contact Greenies Apple Repairs on 0401 229 220 or you can contact them at www.greeniesrepairs.com.au or find them on Facebook. Now just to get onto this busted screen. From there, then, you you went back to Australia for a certain time and then you ended up going to Africa, didn't you? Is that right? So I left 
left Canada in August yep. 2009, went back to London for, for a month um, and then ended up going back home um, and went back to working for the same company I worked for in Mackay before I left. Yep. With the with the the goal was to work about twelve to eighteen months and and go travelling around South America, um, and then about seven or eight months into that, like a job come up, uh, an expat job come up for um, Guinea in West Africa. So I applied for that, and yeah, got an interview. Which the interview was basically the my boss that I ended up working for telling me how much of a shit hole it was and how hard it was to work there. Yeah. Um, and if I was up to the challenge, then they'd give me a crack because I hadn't really, because I hadn't done expat work. I was sort of, you know, a bit worried how people would go because it's eight, eight week on, four week off roster. Yep. And it's, you know, once you're at work, you're at work the whole time. It's yeah, it's fairly full on. But so they, they give me a chance and I took off and, and started that, um, which was great for me because they would fly me anywhere I wanted to go on my break. Yeah. So allow me to allow me to travel more. So the yep. first break I went out on, on that, went out, I went to London because Hilly was living in London, and and then me and I went over to Berlin, and he had to work, finish work, and we we went on a bit of a trip. So he we caught a train to Krakow and went watched went looked at um went and visited Auschwitz and Birkenau, which obviously Auschwitz is like the millions of people that got got killed mm. there. In, like it, it was so surreal and and so eerie. Like walking around there and, and just seeing, like you know, you go into one room and you still got to see all the suitcases and all these people's belongings, and and then behind it, in another room, there's behind windows like tons and tons of human hair. Um, and then we went into one of the you go into the gas chambers to have a look, and like I remember Hilly just going. I can't even stay in here. Like, yeah. And I, like, I didn't even take a photo, you know, like people were taking photos. I just couldn't even take a photo. Like it was just to know, you know, the history of it and to, to see it and just think how people could do that to other people was mm. just, yeah, it was mind blowing. Like, and then, yeah, just, just worked for a bit. Um, after that sort of did my thing. And, and then we went to South America Um Went with two friends. Um, went to Galapagos Islands, which was, which was yeah, pretty amazing. Sailed around there for a week. From there, we went to Cusco, and then we we're doing Machu Picchu. Yep. The night before, the night before we were meant to do Machu Picchu, we went going out for dinner. I'm crossing the road, and there's a police woman directing traffic, telling us to walk across the road. She told me, told us to walk. I started walking across the road. Next thing, got cannon into by a bloke on a motorbike. Oh shit! Knocked him flying. Knocked me flying. Luckily, I, uh, I mean, and I was only, I was in flip flop shorts, uh, boardies, and a singlet. Yep. I ended up on the footpath. Skin off me everywhere. Um, knocked him flying off his bike. His bike, like, copped a bit of damage. And then the next thing, we're both in the back of the police wagon. Mm. Being taken to the police station, and they just sat me there and sat me there, and then they said, "Like, this is the other guy's statement. Can you um, sign it?" And I said, "I'm not signing it because it's in Spanish and I don't know what it says." So 
they got the tourist police in and they read it out to me and they said, is this what happened? I said, no, that's not what it, He basically said that I, it was my fault and that I had to pay for his bike. Mm. And then not, so they just said, here, sit down at the computer, write this out, and then they put it in the Google Translate. Yeah. And then they, they, then they wanted me to um, to wanted me to go to court and sue him. I said, no, I just want to be done with this. I'm leaving tomorrow. Don't worry about it. But I was like, how the hell am I going to get like, the skin off the top of my feet and all that sort of thing? And like, I, said, I said, how am I going to walk tomorrow? Like, We've got four days of walking. And, um, yeah, we managed to do it. Though. Like, it's... Like it was um, four days we we hiked and did the Machu Picchu, like the Inca Trail, which was phenomenal. Like, you know, your little porters, like you think you're going pretty well and you, they pack your tent up after you leave. They pack all the breakfast stuff up, all, they do all your work and then they put it on their backs and they run past you as you mm. go, as they go. And then they set everything up for lunch, cook your lunch. When you get there, you have your lunch off you go again and then they do the same again and by the time you get to where you camp at that night everything's set up for you your, your clothes are in your tent and everything like that they were phenomenal yep. one girl rolled her ankle on our last day on the walk out and uh, the porters carried her as well bloody hell so they're strong like, and they were running oh yeah and they, they're doing it in sandals and flip flops yep. and yep. wearing full on hiking shoes yep. <laughs> and they just like they just run the whole way like they yep. just Phenomenal, like it is, and then well, on your last day when you finally get there and you see the you're sort of up on the sundial, they call, I think they call it, and you watch the sun come up over over uh, Machu Picchu. It's pretty amazing, but mm. quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then from there we went to La, we went to La Paz, which should have been an eight hour bus ride, turned into about thirty six because there was um, strikes and we had to go down into Chile and all the way back up into Bolivia to La Paz. So what was your next move after that, mate? Yeah, moved to St. Anton. Um, yep. So Nathan Jeffrey, a mate growing up, I guess, so, um, well, he wasn't. He, um, he'd he been living there. I mean, when we first went over to Europe, we sort of connected again and went and saw him. And I hadn't seen him. Well, that was 2008. I hadn't seen him for shit, eight or nine years. Yeah, and uh, we connected on Facebook, and I said, "Oh, you know, where can we go skiing?" He goes, "Come here, idiot!" You know, so I went and saw him, and then we reconnected, and I visited there a few times as well, and um, so I decided to to go there and do a season. So yeah, we started there, um, and had an amazing winter. Um, it was like the snow was unbelievable. Got towards the end of the winter. Um, I think it was March, so a bit of a spring day. We're out and uh, had a bit of an accident. <laughs> yeah, where I uh, come off the ski, well, hit something under the snow and come off the ski, and then like my leg got stuck in motion, and I end up dislocating my kneecap, rupturing my PCL, my medial, and uh, yeah, I had to get a helicopter off the mountain. Like, got- yeah. Do you ever think at any point that skiing maybe is not for you, Cos? <laughs> you sound like my old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a pretty brutal one, though. Like, I put my kneecap back in on the mountain and I screamed. Yeah. Like, it, it was pretty painful. The helicopter come out and uh, lowered the doctors down and hooked me up into the harness and gave me a bit of morphine again. And uh, off we went. Like, And at first I was like, oh, a bit, 
this is a bit scary. And then the morphine kicked in. And I'm just looking around. I was like, how beautiful is this? <laughs> you know, hanging 50 meters under a helicopter in the Austrian Alps. Going, this is a, this is the best view I've ever seen. And the straps didn't break <laughs> even better. No, yeah. <laughs> I did ask the doctor, and I don't think he really understood me. I said, I did ask him. I said, this is strong enough to carry all three of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and they took me like I yeah I think it was a fifteen minute. Uh, Helicopter ride yep. and uh, took me to hospital, and then so I went back up to St Anton, got the went to see the doctor there, got in for an MRI, went back and and they read it. And he goes, "Oh, you've got a slight tear in your in your um, PCL." And I said, "You sure about this?" I said, "Mate, something snapped. I heard something snap. I felt I heard it and I felt it." I said, "Like," I said, "Look, are you sure about this?" He goes, "Yep, yeah, I am." And uh, I went back home and my partner at the time, like she, she was super, like she was concerned, fairly concerned, and got back to where we were living. and And luckily, Stephen ordered the people I lived with in, or lived in their house. They'd both had knee injuries from skiing previously, and and seen a different surgeon down there. So they they worked with uh, another friend in St Anton to get me down to Felkirk, which is a in a different like different area to see. The, the surgeon down there, and when I went down there, like, and just went in there, and they made me do this X-ray where I had to kneel on the corner of a step with one knee, and then the other one just to see how much movement there was, which was horribly painful. And um, and then they did that, and then they looked at the MRI, and they looked, <laughs> looked at the X-ray, and he said, "Oh, he goes, what did your doctor tell you in St. Anthony?" He said, "I had a slight tear in your PC." He goes, "Well, I don't know how." He goes, "You don't have one anymore. It's completely gone." You've got to have a PC. You've got to have a PCL reconstruction. Yep. So there's no way, no way around it. So yeah. So month later, had that, did all the rehab and and that in in Austria. Like the surgeon was amazing. Like he was scary. Like he was like first time I went back after surgery. It was like he just like berated me for not doing enough training, and then yeah, eventually uh, skied again. Like I think started the the next year. So. Yeah, and then I started work in Egypt that year in October, yep. I think it was. Had you been so. to Egypt before? No, I hadn't. Again, another. I, I hated it at first when I got there, the first swing. But once I got the first swing out of the way, I, I loved it. Um, just got to know the guys and that sort of thing. Um, so, and yeah, I ended up being there for five years. So, you know, it can't have been too bad. And yeah, got a lot of experiences there. We would there during the, when Morsi took over leadership for the first time and and then when he got thrown out as well and that made caused a bit of tension and it was a bit bit hairy at times like when you're driving through crowds and that sort of thing but I was going to um, ask you that like have any any times in your travels have you felt like unsafe like you're in like a war zone or anything like that or I, I felt a bit I was a bit worried in Egypt we went and we were told not to we had our day off and we were told not to go down to uh, Haggadah, and we did. And when, when we come back, it was like basically when they'd, they'd over, overrun, like thrown Morsi out, even though they'd only been elected president, you know, not long before. And um, we were driving through one of the towns and they were just like people on the street everywhere and you were driving and they are just rocking the car and it was like AKs going off, being shot in the air and, and that sort of thing. And... Um, yeah, it was 
it's pretty bloody scary. Like, especially when they start a rocket, because like our driver just goes, whatever you do, do not put your window down. And uh, so was that? he goes, well, I'll see Westerners, I'll probably pull you out. So it's like, do not, yeah. So they just rocked the car. Like it was, but they were doing it to every car as well. Like it was, they were just like, they were rejoicing really, but it was, it was a bit, I'd never yeah. seen anything like that. So it was a bit, you know, it's and you scary. hear the guns, like, yeah. You hear the gunshots going off like around the place and that sort of thing. Like, like they're just firing them in the air. And I never saw any, but you could just hear it. And I was like, oh, you know, like this is a bit real. And um, speaking of scary, like you said, um, you spent five years over there, but in that time, you're in Nepal. There was an earthquake while you, while you were there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, that's something that not a lot of people in Australia are ever going to experience. What is it actually like being an earthquake? The first one, I didn't realize what was happening and I wasn't. Like, I was sort of blissfully unaware, I think. And um, so we were in our, we're in our room, we're packing up, and um, we were meant to, we we're about to go on a two day hike. We walked out, so, so we're in this you know, hotel, we're on the fourth floor, and they just had those a tiny little elevator, barely enough size for two people. We were waiting on the elevator to come up so we could go down the elevator. And you could just hear this noise coming, like, and I, I to me, it sounded like a, a plane flying low overhead. And as it came, it got louder and louder and louder. And we we're out, and sort of, we're, like, so the the elevator was sort of in an open, sort of open area. So we're leaning over the balcony, having a look to see if we can see this plane. Next thing, like the two Nepalese like girls come running, and they said, "Look, it's an earthquake! Earthquake! Run! Run! Run!" So we just left our bag and that we started running down the stairs. By the time we got to the bottom, we run down the stairs and like we were hitting the um, guard arm, got the guardrail on one side and the wall on the next one, like in between steps. So one step you'd hit the wall, one step you'd hit. And we got outside and I just stood there and I, and I just sort of froze and I just looked up and I just saw the building flexing like it was Shit. how it never come down. Like, and and Cow, my mate, I was with, like, he, he goes, he's in construction and that's what he goes. I've never seen, he goes, I never knew a building could flex that much. Yeah. Like, you could see it. And then, you know, the dogs were going, man, cows are running down the road and you could feel it moving under your feet. Like, it was, it was pretty surreal. And then, like, I wasn't too bad at that point. And then, so after a while, we went for a bit of a walk and then we walked down and we could see loads of people around the TV screen and then you could just see the destruction. We're in Pokhara, fair way from Kathmandu, but you could just see the destruction that had happened in Kathmandu. Yeah. And then we. So you were sort of on the we outskirts were, of the earthquake where you didn't yeah, get the, the yeah, full force so, of it? No, nah, luckily. And we, but we went in to get some, uh, like a couple of hours later, we thought, oh, we'll get get some lunch because we couldn't do the hike because all the land, like landslides and all that sort of thing. And then the aftershock hit. And that's when I, that's when I first got scared. That's when I started feeling scared because I, I knew what had happened and I knew it. And like we're in another building and like we had to run outside again. Yeah. And the aftershocks just keep coming, just kept coming for 24 hours. Like it was yep. to a point where you just didn't want to go inside. When so have you home. sort of had, had any education on what to do in an earthquake or if those Nepalese people weren't there, you you wouldn't have had any idea? What Would you have just froze and stayed in the building, do you think? Or? Possibly. Possibly. I, I haven't really thought of it, but, like, I would have still been looking for the plane that I thought was flying <laughs> over here. <laughs> I, 
I was very surprised that building didn't come down. Yeah. And and then, you know, we were stuck there. We we couldn't go anywhere. We're like all the roads were blocked because of landslides and and that sort of thing. And um eventually so I, I had to, you know, message work and and tell them that I wasn't gonna get make it back to work on time and because why and you know, I, you know, like obviously I knew, the family knew I was there, so I had to send like make sure I contacted you know mum and dad and everyone and to tell them that you know, look, yeah, we felt it, but it wasn't so bad and we're all okay. And, I mean, our guide was amazing. Like he stayed with us the whole time, even though he knew he'd lost family members, he didn't leave us. Really, he stayed with us the whole time. Oh, mate, so how did he know yeah, that? He how just, did he find out? Uh, phone on through the phone, like. Like his house got, he's lost his house. He's lost, you know, family members lost their houses, and he lost. I think he lost the uncle, or, and and um. But he he would not leave us, like leave our group. Um, he stayed there until we could go back to Kathmandu, and was safe to go back to Kathmandu. And we were telling him to go, but he he wouldn't go. Like he's such a good man. Like the Nepalese people are the, I think that's what they're the nicest people I've ever come across. I reckon. Like, yeah. And then we finally we got to go back to Kathmandu and just driving into Kathmandu was like a war zone. Like it was like devastation. And and Cal and my mate said something that's always stuck with me. And he, he said, um, ever since, he goes, you know, if we're in St. Anton, we can see this on the news or whatever, or if we're in home in Australia, see this on the news and just go, geez, that's bad. I feel sorry for them. And he goes, and then you're probably not going to think about it ever again. He goes, but to see how bad it actually is, like, you know, like it's, you know, you, you never realise or you never probably um, have the, not the appreciation, but the gravity, the enormity of the situation unless you sort of experience it firsthand, I guess. Like, yeah. you know, because I, I've thought about it for a lot. Like me and him ended up sending like Santos, our guide, money to help rebuild his house and all that sort of thing and, we, we went into Kathmandu thinking, okay, we're going to stay here, we're going to help. Well, you couldn't do anything other than go and hand out water, which we did. And that's like, I mean, we went to this, we're in the Australian, staying in the Australian consulate. And to listen to other people that actually did have buildings fall down around them was pretty insane. Mm. Like, you know, they're running out and they're like, the building's literally crumbling behind them. And like, it's, you know, we were so lucky. Mm. And, um, you know, like it, it was definitely an adventure. It yeah. wasn't the adventure we thought we were going to get, but, you know, it could have been so much worse. And there's so many people were so much worse off than us. But, um, you know, like, at least, you know, we, we still, like, we mean him still talk about it every now and then. So, you know, and we're still in contact with Santos every now and then and, and that sort of thing. So, like, it's, we've never sort of forgotten about it. And it, in fact, it actually happened on Anzac Day as well. Mm. 2015, like so for us, like it's a day that I'll, yeah, I'll never forget that ever. Lucky enough that year, like went to went to the Ashes in in London. We got a place at the Oval, rented a place overlooking that. But I went to Mexico. Um, <laughs> this is a story I've told a few people, but I didn't think I'd tell on a public platform. But <laughs> you got a new audience here, mate. The amount of people that are going to listen to this. <laughs> so I went to Puerto Escondido, um, like a. Down it's a surf place down in um in Mexico and I was there a week and afterwards I was going to Vancouver. So I left Puerto and went to Mexico City and had the night in Mexico City. 
I was watching the NBA playoffs, had a couple of, couple of beers, two beers I think I had, and had some tacos or whatever it was. And that night I woke up in the middle of the night feeling with a bit of a crook stomach. And I thought, oh, here we go. And uh, managed to go back to sleep. I had an early flight. I checked out of it and uh, went to the went across to the to check in for the flight. And after I checked in and got into the departure lounge, I started feeling like horribly ill. Like <laughs> so, I raced into the uh, bathroom and started throwing up. Um, and then, so once I sort of got through that, went and got some Quell and some seasick tablets and some motion like motion sickness stuff and like uh, some Imodium as well. Because I only had, like, had to get on the flight. So I get on the flight, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, as we're taking off, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be sick. So I just unbuckled to Dalmate. I look out, jumped across him, started running run up the, the the back of the plane to the toilet. The air hostess is yelling at me to sit down. And we got into the bathroom, and I threw up. And as I come out, she's like, just sit here. And she goes, yeah, okay. And I said, no, I'm, I'm sick. So I think I've got food poisoning. And she goes, so it's not alcohol-related. It's definitely not alcohol-related. And then I was, she goes, just sitting here for a while and, you know, try and sip some water. And she looked after me. And eventually, like, and I threw up a few more times. And then eventually I went back to my seat and I fell asleep. Anyway, I woke up and I was just drenched in sweat. And I was just like, like was must like the guy next to me just goes, You don't look so well, Are you okay? I said, No, nah. I said, You need to move. And I start, start start making my way up to the back back of the plane again. Next thing I wake up and I'm on the floor and I I, I fainted. I passed out. And uh I kept going trying to get up and like they had a blanket over me and she's like one of the air hosts is like, Yeah, okay? And I said, Yeah, I'm okay. I just need to go to the bathroom. She goes she sort of leant down and closer to me, and she's like, "You don't ha- happen to have a change of clothes on board by any chance?" Do you? And I said, "Oh, I said, oh yeah, I have a pair of boardies and a singlet in my backpack." And I said, "What was that?" And she goes, "Well, when you when you passed out, you seem to have messed yourself." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'd shit me. Flood gates open. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I got got up. She goes, "You might want to keep the towel." I said, can, I said, there's baby wipes in there as well. Can you <laughs> come prepared? And I got into like, and I could just feel it. Like, and I wiped board shorts on. It was just a mess. And I got into, and I was so sick. I just didn't care. People were laughing and like some people like, and I was like, I got in there and I just like took my undies and my shorts off and just threw them straight in the rubbish <laughs> and like. Just had to baby wipe myself for about half an hour just to try and clean myself up so I didn't look like such a mess. Yeah. I went and sat down. Oh, mate, asked to move seats because <laughs> he was scared I was going to throw up on him. And, uh, and then I got on him. Yeah. And I arrived, to, arrived into Vancouver and I was like, my mate that I used to live with him over there, he's like, holy hell, you look like death. And I was like, just looked at him and I was like, ow, I just shit myself on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> he's got, he goes, he's just gone, I can't leave you time. He goes, I am so happy. He goes, this is like the best moment of my life. <laughs> but it was the worst six hours of my life on that flight. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you told me too, mate. That's a, that, that'll definitely go in that one. Don't worry about that. <laughs> 
When it comes to home renovations, there's nothing more important than getting the kitchen right. So you've got two options. Have a crack at it yourself and then get someone else in to fix it, or get the team at Infinite Joinery and Designs in from the start to avoid a lot of stress and dirty looks from the better half. If you're thinking of renovating your kitchen, give Sam and the team at Infinite a call straight away. Specialising in kitchen renovations, they can also take care of new home joinery fit-outs, renovations, laundries, wardrobes. They have 3D design software and Sam alone has over 20 years experience in joinery and project management. Find them on Facebook and Instagram or phone Sam on 0429 291 008 or by email which is sam at infinitejoineryanddesign.com. So don't be like me, thinking you'll save a few bucks and have a crack at it yourself. Call these guys in so you can sit back and watch the experts go to work. So just to change pace a little bit, like around that same time, um, I know the next part of part of your story, um, you you took a job in West Africa, so and that could that allowed you to be um, to be able to spend more time back in Tasmania because you found out that your um, stepmother was ill. Can you sort of take that story up for us? Yeah, so towards the end of my time in Egypt in 2017, um, Wendy had been, my stepmom had been sick for quite a while, uh, probably six months, and uh, they didn't, they couldn't work out what it was. Like, um, they, they tested for a stroke, they tested for everything, and then final straw was testing for motor neuron disease. Um, and they went, Dad and her went down to Hobart to do the tests. Um, and then they went, the next week they went down to get the results. And um, I'll never forget it because I've just finished night shift. And man, <laughs> we've got better, but me and my old man, like, are pretty staunchy, not showing probably emotion to each other. And I'd, I'd never, heard him even at my nan's funeral he never cried you know ne- never seen him sort of flustered enough to 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 cry or um you know i've seen him get angry and that's sort thing, of but just to show emotion to that level i've never seen, seen it and he couldn't even talk and i knew straight away that what the diagnosis was like he was he just couldn't even get the words out like so to to hear my, my old man cry even though it was over the phone. And I've never seen it again. He'd never done anything in front of me ever. Like, even if, you know, when things got tough and I was at home, like, he'd, he'd always walk away so I wouldn't see it. But, like, just to hear that, like, it was complete devastation. Um, so I'd, I'd already decided to quit work at that stage in Egypt. And I had a job off, or I had a job I went for in, in West Africa and over here in Mauritania. And um, because I, would like the way it was was would have been easier for me to live at home. Um, so I, I finished up in I think October and I, I stayed in started there in in January and I went home and and I, as soon as I got home and I heard Wendy speak, I said to Dad, I said, how how could you not know this? Like listen to her voice. He was like, yeah, but we couldn't tell because we're just so used to it. You know, it just got worse and worse and worse gradually. And I could hear it straight away. And I said, well, I'm going to move home. I'm going to work. I've got this job in West Africa. Like they'll, uh, they'll pay my tax in Australia for me. Um, so I'm going to move home. And, and that was that's what I was going to do. And then Wendy, of all people, like so me and Wendy had a pretty complex relationship growing up. We weren't real big fans of each other. 
it wasn't until I sort of grew up and matured a little bit more and, and that, you know, that me and her, our relationship changed. And I was talking to her and I said, you know, and she goes, you're not moving home. I said, what? And she goes, I don't want you to move home. I said, well, it will make things easier. I'll be able to help out. She goes, no. She said, like, you, you're happy over there. You know, you've grown into a, a good man and I want you to continue doing what you're doing. You're happy over there. You don't need to be over here worrying about me and doing this for me. So, so yeah, so I went back a lot more, but I didn't move home. Um, that meant a lot to me, her saying that. Um, as it went along, you know, all that that year, I um, the next year I flew home just for five days for Christmas because I had time off, so I, I made it home just for Christmas. And we were at um, uh, went to Christmas with her her family at at a brother's in Westbury, and we sat down and had another really good talk. And she's like, you know. I know your father wants you to come home and that sort of thing. She goes, but just do what makes you happy. Like she was, and my mum's always been the big, the same. And dad has been supportive, but he, he, you know, he'd love to have me home, which I understand as well. But she's like, you know, do what you've got to do and, and that sort of thing. And each time I just saw it, it was so vivid to me because each time I came back, I could see the deterioration from the last time I was there. Yeah. You know, whereas you probably miss that a little bit when you're around them all the time. Yeah. Obviously, and, with, with MND, mate, sorry to, to cut in on you. Like, obviously, there's a lot more awareness around it now, you know, with Neil Danaher and that here as well. But yeah. for anyone that doesn't know, can you just give them a quick idiot's guide to MND, like what, what it actually does to the body? Yeah, well, basically, it's just an autoimmune disease that breaks down your body and, like, your mind stays sharp, but you lose the functions in your body. It's not sending the signals out to your, the rest of your body and you lose... Functions like uh, Wendy's speech was probably the the first to go, and then like started losing the use of her hands, and uh, and then ended up uh, not being able to walk. Like Neil Danaher is a, a, a freak. Like he's lasted so long. Like because they you always look on the M and D stuff, and they say twenty seven months, and, and Wendy was close to that. And but he he just become you know her hero. Like. And whether he knows that, like the effect, what he's done on on so many people, like it's profound. You know, like Wendy was doing things for the same as him, like just any test she could do to help people in the future. She did it, um, you know, and she really, she was really hoping that she met him some one day, but she never got to. Um, yeah, but I'd, I'd imagine there'd be a lot of people that would love to meet the, the man. Uh, and yeah, so it just, you know, and then she was great for for most of it, but you could just see it wearing her down and wearing her down. I was proud of dad, the way he sort of dealt with it. Like he changed a lot. Um, and he's no carer, (laughs) don't get me wrong, but, but he was trying, he was trying really bloody hard. So I was proud of him for that. Um, yeah. And then. It all came to a head like uh, February, what, I think it was four years ago, 2019. Yeah. I'd, I'd been scared. I'd been to Japan and I'd just landed back in Austria on the Saturday night. And then on the Sunday morning, Dad called me and said, you need to come home when he's got a week to live. And um, 
and he was right. She only lasted the week, and so I flew home, um, and then on the weekend, that weekend, I think it was I spoke with Amanda and and talked to her, and and she didn't know whether to come home or not because Wendy had always told her she didn't want to see her like that the night before she went, and I could understand that. And in the end, I just said to Amanda, and I'm sure she won't mind me talking about this. So I said, it's up to you. Like, she can't say anything now, but are you going to regret not coming home if you don't come home? And then, like, her and the kids and, and her husband were on the, you know, on the flight and got home on the Saturday. And that night, we're all in the room. <laughs> and my mum rang me, and I didn't get to my phone in time, and then she rang my sister straight away. I was like, that's weird for mum to ring, like, do that. And she rang up and <laughs> my uncle, my mum's brother, passed away that night on the Saturday night. Oh, right um, And, I mean, he he got more, like, he was out of bad heart for a long time and, you know, and, so, and then the very next day, Wendy passed away as well. It's like she waited for Mandy to get there, like, sort of thing, like... Um, but I, I know Amanda's glad that she got there before before it ever happened. So yeah, yeah. Um, I know like Dusty, um, when his other her son, he could get down because of work and and family life and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's it was like just seeing her at the end was just a shell of the person I I knew. Like it, like I just you know I felt. Like she was so positive for so long, but you know, you're just basically trapped in your own mind. You can't do anything for yourself. You can't eat. You know, like you have to crush stuff. They have a tube. You put a tube in there. You crush all everything up into all vitamins and all that sort of thing, and it goes in, into you via tube. And it's just a, it's just a such a cruel disease. Um, mm. You wouldn't wish it on anyone, no matter how. Where how bad a person they are, whatever whoever they are, you would never wish it on anyone. And you actually had a, a pretty rough couple of years there because in when COVID hit, like you were one of the first people to actually get COVID where you were staying at the time, weren't you? Yeah, I was actually patient zero. I was number one. Yeah. Um, not a not a title that you'd be sought after, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. No, it was uh <laughs> and I tell you what, I was so close not to saying anything. Like I I arrived in country to go to work on the on the Monday. Yep. And um, I felt fine. I'd had a, so on the weekend, I'd had a weekend in Austria. I'd made it come over. We went to a place called the Moosevert in St. Anton, which is just to put in perspective, it's a, just a, it's a big pub. And, but it sells more beer than any other pub in Austria for the whole of the year. And it only opens from December to April. Um, and so we went there. I went there to show him, and I was there with a mate from had come down from Norway that used to live there with his with his partner, and they had a bunch of friends. And so we were drinking with them. And then it was like we heard that there was COVID in the town next to us. And then when I left, I got into work on the I got into the capital city on the Monday. On the Tuesday night, I woke up with a fever and a sore throat and a cough. And I'm like, I've I've got got COVID here. So then. Next morning, I rang our doctor and I said, look, I'm pretty sure I've got COVID. I said, uh, what do I do? 
And he said, well, he goes, do you know anyone else that's had it? You know, I said, no. He goes, well, let's just, well, at the moment, you haven't got it then. He goes, you haven't been exposed. I said, well, I'm just going to isolate myself anyway, just in case, get my get my food delivered to my room instead of going down and having breakfast in the guest house to, and that sort of thing. He said, yep, that's a good idea. Um, and then I rang my direct boss and I said to him, I said, mate, I've definitely got COVID. And I said, I know it was in the town. I was like, I'm a piss on the weekend. And um, I said, should I say anything to the bosses? And he goes, oh, he goes, that's up to you. He goes, I'll just back up whatever you, you say. Mm. And then I rang, then I rang my manager and uh, the the area manager, and I said, look, so that I've talked to Berger. I said, look, I've got COVID. I'm isolating myself. And um, he's like, right, and then, I mean, I wasn't feeling horrible. I like, had a headache and, and that's from England. No, like, bad flus are the worst. Mm. And, and then so I rang the doctor and they had to let the authorities know. And on the Friday, they come in and tested me. It was Friday the 13th, March, 13th of March. <laughs> and they tested me and I said, look, what happens if, I, if I've actually got it? And I said, oh, well, I don't know. We don't know because we're not prepared for this. Like, like most of the world wasn't like it, you know, I still don't have a grudge for that. Like none of the world was, was really prepared. Like mm. it was sort of one of those things that like it never got real for me until it was like close by in Italy and like, yeah. you know, holy shit, you know, like it's coming through. Yeah. But until you sort of start experiencing it, you just, you just think, oh, that's just something that's happened overseas. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so they tested me and Friday on a, on a, um, Fridays in, in for Muslims is a, their prayer day, so they have a, a big prayer on a Friday afternoon. So, like I, I was anxious to get, but I knew I wasn't going to get the test results for until after that. So, like because they tested me at eleven, so they they did their their afternoon prayers, and then it was eleven thirty at night. I think they rang me. Uh, the doctor rang me from work. And he goes, you tested positive. He goes, they're coming to get you. I said, who's coming to get me? He goes, the government are coming to get you. I said, where are they taking me? And he said, that I can't tell you. He said, they won't tell me. So next thing, I pack my bags. I'm waiting. Get a knock on the door. Here's a doctor and John Darn with their AKs in their, in their space suits. In the, um, and, uh, Frog marched me out into the back of an ambulance and, and drove me away. And, and I couldn't see out the ambulance. It was dark in the middle of the night. So I just looked at it. It was about 15 minutes from our guest house. And then when I got out into the car park, I was just in a dirt car park. And it said, in you go. Put me into this, took me into this building, put me there. And uh, that was it. There was no water, no, nothing in it. Like, the water in the toilet was black. It hadn't been... Found out it was an old hospital that hadn't been used for five years. I had no windows. Yeah. And that's where I stayed for the next 16 days. Bloody hell. Um, and it was, yeah, it was pretty brutal. Like, I, I, I'll admit, like, that night, I sort of laid there and I, I cried. I know, you know, you talk about the earthquake and um, whether I was scared. At that first moment, I wasn't scared, but I was bloody scared then, like, I was scared immediately. As soon as they took me away, I was scared. Like, one, because I didn't know anything about COVID. <laughs> yeah. Two, I was worried being in um, in a country, like being the first person in the country, like what? how are people going to react, especially being a foreigner? 
you know, what happens if people go nuts and, you know, that those, well, so many, my brain was on the loop continuously. My anxiety was out of the roof. Like it was, and even the next day, you know, like Grant Wise, who's a good friend of mine now and a mentor and, and was my boss. He made me, he goes, you mate, you just got to try and stay positive. And I said, stay positive. I just lost my shit. I won't say what I said because it's, it's pretty bad, but, and he was just trying to help me out, you know, and I mean, he's, he's, he brushed it off, but he always said to me, he goes, there's a lot of people in your position wouldn't have admitted what to do, wouldn't have done the right thing. He said, I know it doesn't help, but, you know, like, but it was, you know, I never saw it. I had to call it, Lee and our, our, one of our mate, uh, security managers, he ended up coming back with bottles of water for me and toilet paper and, and stuff so I could get through the night. And so they basically like, just the dumped door. you there just to just to rot for a few days. They just dumped me there and left me there and then come back the next morning, checked yep. on, on me, bought me breakfast. Um and then they had I didn't know at the time, but like they locked the hallway, but outside the hallway they did have people stationed there. I I didn't realise that. I just thought they'd just like put me there and left, you know. Yep. And, when I got out in that car park, I thought, these guys are going to shoot me. Yeah. Because uh, I was just, I was in the middle of nowhere. So, yeah, I had no, and there's no hot water, not like nothing. Like, in the end, they got me a dong, like work got me a dongle and, and that sort of thing so I could get on the internet. And and to be fair, they did, they could get me a flight out to go back to Australia. It was going to cost like a quarter of a million dollars. Jesus. That the, that the company would have had to pay. Because I would have been the only one on the flight, and they offered it to me, like, and I said no. And I said no. Well, I don't live in Australia. Well, I didn't. Uh, I don't live in Australia, so you know, I don't. I don't really want to go back there. And looking back now, I should have went because I ended up stuck. Like, I was in there for sixteen days. Um, in the last last week, um, our camp manager actually talked to the government, and he renovated a room, so I got a TV and a. Got hot water. They put a hot water cylinder in there and a proper bed because the bed was nothing. Mm. Um, so they, you know, and they, they renovated a couple of other rooms. And by then, a couple of other people got put in there, and then the company renovated rooms for them as well. So, um, you know, and like I wasn't bitter with the Mauritanian government or anything like that because that's the same as everywhere else. You know, like it was just one of they those things. Know. Like no, and you know. And, and then I got out and then I had to do another 16 days isolation back at the guest house. So again, I went from having my hopes up thinking, yeah, I'm out to doing so in total, I did five weeks yep. in a row of total isolation. So And what what did it do um, to your mindset that time, mate? Burn sort of isolated from, from ever. Like, you know, in obviously that, that was a big talking point, you know, with lockdowns and that sort of thing. Like I know it, it you know, did take its toll on a lot of people. Like, did you find that it sort of changed you for a time or did it affect you mentally oh yeah definitely yeah i I was i I didn't realize how bad though like you know because i ended up being stuck in africa for nearly five months yep couldn't leave because i I, like i said to you earlier before off uh before you're recording that because i only had an Aussie passport i couldn't get back into austria i couldn't get anywhere so i just stayed at work and yeah. I mean, financially, it was great. Worked out great for me. But I would have given it all back if like, every cent back if to have not been there. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it made me really anxious. 
Um, and, you know, and I was not really seeing any light at the end of the tunnel. Like every time I, every time I got let down by thinking I could get home and I couldn't, I just got like more down on myself, more down on the situation. You know, I was drinking way like sort of self-medicating with alcohol at times to sort of numb things and like way too much. Um, and got to a point when I I got out, finally got out in uh, August and I had five weeks and I, I was at, at a, uh, um, just at a sort of a housewarming party in, in Austria. And, I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't myself because I didn't really want to see people and I didn't want to do much and I was locking myself in my room, in my apartment and that sort of thing. But um, a couple of close friends, one in particular, he just came up and just said to me, he goes, look, mate, he goes, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm good. And he goes, well, he goes, we, we don't think you are. He goes, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Like, he goes, what, there's a lot of people in this town worried about you. Yes, we think you need help. And and I, like I sort of broke down then, and, uh, and he, he was right. Like for him to sort of notice that and say something, because uh, I still I still have that stigma about this stuff. Like you know, there's still that stigma that guys can't talk up and that sort of thing. And a lot of your other podcasts talk about this sort of stuff as well. Like the other guys that have been on here, but I, I was yeah, I was in a pretty pretty bad place so he gave me a number of someone to talk to and then in the end I, I found a life coach that I spoke to in Australia that was the first person I sort of professional person I spoke to and she was very blunt and she sort of told me you know you're suffering from more from the um, uh, PTSD full PSTD whatever way you say it from from the like she said it's affected you more than you know like um and so sort of other things that went wrong during that time just added to it you know there's just layers and layers and layers to it yeah. and she's you know like and one of the things she goes you know like you need to look at this the positives like you know you're successful at work you're successful in life and everything else me was like oh, i guess so i guess so. and she's sort of she's like you need to listen like everything every compliment I give you or everything I positive I say to you, you go, yeah, I guess. She goes, you need to understand, start making yourself understand that you've had success and, and draw off this to try and help you through it. She goes, but, and then she gave me someone to talk. She goes, but you need to talk to someone more in depth than a life coach. And which I did. Um, and it, it, it changed. Like it, it really, it, it did help. I felt like a bit of a failure with not being able to cope with it myself. Which is which is not true. Like it was a pretty life changing sort of experience, you know. And, yeah. Because um, I was I was so close, just going stuff this. I'm going to go to work and not say anything. And then I thought, you know, I work with some older guys, um, expats. You know, what happens if one of them gets sick, really sick? Yeah. And you know, or die. What if one of my guys gets it, or they go home? And, and they give it to one of their family and some of their family dies. My conscience just wouldn't let me not just go and just say to hell with this. I'm just going to run the gauntlet. Yeah. At times I wish I did and I never told anyone and who knows, I might not have been stuck in Africa. I might not have, you know, had 
the fallout with relationships and that sort of thing that I lost being stuck away um, and just and I wouldn't have had like the anxiety that I'd suffered for a year, like so much afterwards. Yeah. Um, but all in all, I did the right thing. So yeah. it's and yeah, like to deal with that is a lot easier to deal with the conscience and knowing someone may someone's family may have died because I just was too selfish to yeah to say that I got COVID. You know, and I wasn't that sick. Like the second time I got COVID, I was pretty sick. But the first, that yeah. time, I, I wasn't that sick. So yeah, yeah. And the anxiety and stuff, mate. Are you through that now? Does it still sort of affect you? Do you still have it a little bit? Or? Oh, I'd still get it a little bit. Yeah, but I've just got got things I just sort of put in place and with myself, and yeah, I try um, try and get out and be active, like as much as I can. Like instead of just. Now, especially being here with the weather warm all the time, like any time that I sort of feel like I'm spending too much time in the apartment, I just put a pair of shoes on and just go for a walk or, yep. you know, and, um, you know, or I call people, talk to people. Um, yep. You know, I've, I've learned to, with being here, I don't know many people, so, but I've, so I've learned to sort of be on my, be less anxious on my own. And that sort of, but that was when the most of it was happening, was like when I was being on my own and uncertainty. But now I'm sort of, yeah, calm back down again, and um, and it was all just through basically listening to people, finally listening to people, and 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 seeking out and talking to someone and finding out ways to deal with it, you know, because I, I I've learned to compartmentalize again, like from work and private stuff. Like I have no problems with doing that anymore. Um, I've got an issue at home, then I deal with that at home. If not while I'm at work or got issues at work, then vice versa. So, in the world today, mental health is an issue which thankfully more and more people are becoming aware of and comfortable speaking about. When choosing a professional to help you, what kind of service would you be looking for? At Lonvara, when asked to describe Mel Purcell's service, clients described it as real, compassionate, empowering, friendly, welcoming inner strength building, a positive, safe, supportive environment, and she was described by one source as an absolute legend who enables change with love. Mel offers clinical counselling, hypnotherapy, and a professional service which is tailored to the individual. She has a personal approach and makes sure each client's experience is authentic to their needs while also ensuring full confidentiality. Winner of the 2022 Australian Allied Health Awards for Rural and Remote Excellence, you can self-refer or through your GP mental health care plan. Lonvara, believing in you. So we're up to about 2022 in your journey, mate. Like I'm um, going back to to your work. You had um, a bit of an incident at work that sort of knocked you around a little bit too. Like you had a rough few years there, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, last year we had a we had a fatality on site, um, and I was also a superintendent of in uh, shovels and drills for mobile maintenance. Um, and we had a fatality in, in the maintenance team uh, on a shovel. Uh, like I said off air, but um, I can't sort of go into like too specific about it, but basically it was, I've never seen anything like it, how it happened. Like the guys didn't do anything wrong. Um, it was a freak accident that I've never seen anywhere, not anyone I've ever spoken to about it. In, in sort of these sort of circles, had never seen it. Um, so my supervisor got severely injured, um, and yeah, we lost 
lost one of our one of our team members, one of our men. Um, yeah. So there was a couple of people involved in the accident. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and I, you know, I'd finished work for the day, and I was just got out of the shower, and one of the, the other supervisors called me up. He's like, "Mr. Sean, there's been an incident. Can I have your car to go into this? Go and check it out." I said, "Well, I'll come with you." Because I'm the only one here, the only expert here from the department at the moment. And we went down and I was calling to find out where it was. And they said, don't worry about that one. There's been another one. So we had two basically at the same time and, and which is unheard of. And, and that was the one where, where we lost our mate. And, um, you know, and finally when we got down there and I looked at all the situation, I was like, I was expecting to see like something glaringly obvious. And I never saw it, like, and, and I knew in my mind what I thought that I was going to see, but it didn't happen. Yeah. And unfortunately, he basically he he passed away pretty instantly. Um, and then I remember just going back up and afterwards and having to tell, you know, I've got my whole team, like, there's like fifty to hundred people there waiting to hear like what's going on and having to stand up in front of those like, and. And our, my safety manager at the time offered to do it for me. And I said, no, it's my, my team. I'll, I'll talk to them. Um, I had to stand up there in front of 50 and tell them that one of their one of their brothers had been uh, killed in, in an accident. It was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do. Like, to hear guys, you know, their reactions um, and... And, you know, like I was trying to hold it together myself. Um, and I had to do that two or three times like with, and talk about it with, and then go through the investigation. Like I, I didn't sleep for for days really. Like uh, like I that morning I'd started work at six and then I never got to bed until five o'clock the next morning and then I was back up at six. You know, I got home at four from going through everything and, and making sure my supervisor was okay as well and and um and then we started the next day we started the investigation we went through and did all the investigation got all the findings and that sort of thing but just to sort of try and like again compartmentalizing like my feelings and what i could project like i was i mean i had so much empathy for everyone and and you know we sort of when we did start work we started easing back into it but sort of trying to lead from the front and sort of be strong to show these guys without sort of, you know, in the background when I was alone, like locking the door every now and then in my office and just like just sitting there and going, you know, having to have time to myself because what I was projecting at times was completely different to what I was feeling. Yeah. And, but they needed, a, you know, like, and this came from, from one of my old bosses. He goes, mate, you're going to have to stand up and lead. You lead, lead these boys out of this. He goes, so, you know, have your time. He goes, but he goes, you're going to have to project confidence to these boys and that you're the man to lead them out of it. Otherwise, they're just going to – and he said, look, I've been through it before with a fatality. He goes, we just had a soft start, slowly, slowly, slowly. He goes, he goes but have empathy, have do whatever you've got to do. He said, be yourself. He goes, but you've got to lead them out of it. And, and that's why I took that on board and and tried to do. But in the background, like I was – just I just couldn't sleep. Like every time I was, like went to sleep, I could see his body, you know, um, where it was. And after picking him up and putting him in the ambulance, like 
had blood on my arm like for a week. I was scrubbing blood off my arm that wasn't there, you know, and it was it was pretty tough and and I, I didn't tell I, there's not too many people that actually know about it. Like I kept it pretty much to myself. Um that night I rang my partner, my mum and dad, you know, and just rang people close to me and told them and you know, like I just wanted to, to be with that like talk to them and you know and and yeah, and then I sort of again well I made a decision to, to talk to someone about this stuff, like to deal with it, to help deal with it. Like it because it, it was weighing on my mind, like I wasn't and I and that's when the anxiety sort of crept in a couple of times again. Like when we had to, so I had to go I know, but I did, I threw myself into work and I had to redesign the way we did a few things and that sort of thing and but when we were doing similar jobs or the same sort of job, my anxiety I could I knew my I could feel my anxiety going up and like you know like and it wasn't a lack of trust in the guys to do the job again without the same thing happening because we'd done it hundreds of times and without ever you know or thousands of times probably without even having an incident and but that sort of that one time was like maybe a bit like scared to do it again like so it took a while to get to work through that as well so yeah. yeah. And um, well, I was just going to say, look, for as a manager, because it was, and again, I know that you, you can't talk about what happened, but if it was something, you know, quite innocuous, it was very unlikely to happen. How do you, how do you get your employees to be confident enough? Because I'd assume some of them would have had to do the same job that this particular guy was doing, and make them confident to do that role. Did did that take a little while? Or? Yeah. So part of the investigation, obviously. Um, we had you know, come up with sort of ways and means to mitigate risk and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, you, like the best thing you can do is eliminate it. But so I, what I did was instead of doing a sort of a JHA or JCA or whatever you want to call them, yeah. um, I did a method statement. I like sat down and did a method statement, but I involved like instead of me just because I've done this job before, but I hadn't done this job for, you know, for years and and I was always helping the mechanics do this sort of job and so what I did was did a method statement but instead of just me sitting there writing it I got four or five mechanics involved like the supervisor a couple of supervisors um a couple of the OEM like the caterpillar technicians um so I had a big group and we went through the method because one of the things we we noticed like not just in this incident, there's a there's a lot of stuff that you perceive it doing being done one way, but it's being done another way. So we did a method statement and involved them. And I said, right, this is what I've got. The way the steps that I think it should be done is this how we do it? And I said, no, boss, that's not how we do it. I said, okay, so let's write everything down. So we went through the way actual things that were being done on the ground that were different to the um, SOP and what, what was on the, the regular JSA. So we did this method state and then that overrid our SOPs for that job and our, and doing a job, say, JSA or a JHA. Um, and everyone would sign onto that and everyone was clear. And we changed, you know, like we changed it, like where people stood. It was a, basically it was probably um, – not an overreaction, but like it was each each thing we put in place was an ex- probably extended to a point where it was probably a little bit 
too, um, or not too safe, but, you know, if, if, the, if you had a distance that you had to stand 20 metres, we made the distance 50 metres. Like, it was just yeah. sort of, you know, to cancel out any chance of it ever happening again. So, yeah, yeah. And, and to make sure that these risks were mitigated. And we looked at every option we could to, to not even do this job in that wherever it was done or and that sort of thing. So yeah. Yeah, it, it took a yeah, it was a lot of work. But the guys I found the guys really appreciated being involved in it yeah. and giving them some voice. A lot of good messages and strategies for there for anyone in management too. So um mate, we're coming to the end of your journey. Obviously we've gone through a lot of the tough stuff, but um, you know, you're in the uh, you moved to the Canary Islands, but you're looking at moving moving back to Australia soon. Yeah, um, I was looking at moving back in September, but it looks like I'm, well, the wheels are in motion on a job um, up in Queensland, yep. um, which I'm looking forward to. So I reckon I'll be home in the next month or so. And so after basically 15 years away, um, yep. and I'm, I'm really keen to get home and, and uh, spend some time back in Oz and, and with family and friends. And, and uh, yeah, like I always thought one, I didn't think I'd go back home, but uh, once I sort of finished work in January and, and um, I sort of just enjoyed myself a little bit, like I'm feeling like it's it's a good time to go home and, you know, there's plenty of work and um, we're not getting any younger. So, you know, a good time to spend with, with the parents and, and also mates and that sort of thing as well like, yep. and, and see, see their kids grow up a bit, so... Yeah, Do you reckon after travelling, it's going to be much of an adjustment for you moving moving back, or is it something that you're a little bit anxious about at all? Or? Um, I'm not too anxious. It is a bit daunting because I was, you know, here is just so laid back. You know, like you know, some of the laid back ways over here, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I start, started bodyboarding again, and I'm terrible. I don't know if I'd do that in Australia, like in case I got bagged out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> whereas, whereas here, no one gives a shit. Like, I'm, I could be the worst in the world. No one cares. Like, no one says anything. No one, you know, like everyone just goes about their business. Yep. Um, so there's less judgment over there. Yeah, 100%. But um, I am I am uh, intrigued to see how I go. Like, it's I don't want to get back and try and compare everything. Oh, you know, when I was, when I was in Austria or when I was in Spain or, I think I just got to go roll with the punches and accept that you know I'm, Australia's different to when I left it, yep. um, and it's still a good place to live, um, albeit expensive, you know. And but I, I'm I'm excited by it, um, and I am interested to see some situations how I'd handle it being back there. So yeah, but I but. But the best thing is like getting back to Tassie. Like Tassie's grown, but it's not changed that much. Like, but the good thing about like Tassie, like the people are always the same. Yeah, I feel like I feel people from Tassie are really down to earth, and you know, and um, you can always tell those like Tassie people when you're away, like. We sort of, even when I was in Austria, I think there's five or six of us living there, and none of us knew each other before we were there. But you know, they're all just the sort of same laid back and love the outdoors and that sort of thing, and yep. and, and pretty genuine. Yeah. Um. You know, and it's easy to get lost in a big city and and sort of lose that sort of sort of thing as well. Um, yeah. But I am excited about you know 
Tassie itself and spending more time back there. Like it, it is. Like I've been to some amazing places in the world, and Tassie's Tassie's out there. Yeah. For me, like, and it's taken me a long time to appreciate that. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a big change, but um, even get, just going back to work and working in Australia, like in that that environment is. I'm going to have to like get used to that as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's a lot different to what I've been doing, and so yeah. But it's a it's just all a big challenge, really. So I'm way sure. to move forward. So. I'm sure you'll adjust, mate. It sounds like you've been pretty used to thinking on your feet, so you'll be able to find your way through it. Let's <laughs> hope so. What's your best experience of travelling, mate? Um, What's the best thing you've done? I, I reckon the best experience is is meeting people and, and like growing and and learning about other cultures yeah. um, and open, and broadening your mind. Like I know it's probably a bit corny, but, you know, the people I've met travelling, you know, uh, have been so, like, changed me in so many ways. And um, so I guess the experience, just the whole experience of, you know, meeting new people, coming out of your shell a little bit. Like I was quite shy. I'm, until I get to know people, I'm quite shy. Yeah, which people will laugh at, but it's true. Like, and um, you know, it's just opened up my mind to what was possible. Like, because I didn't think, like, I never dreamt in my entire life that I'd travel as much as what I had. Yeah, and and so just that experience and the confidence of going and doing things, and 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 now doing things on my own. Like, I don't need to go and do it with other people to have a good trip or anything like that. I can go on my own. And yeah. Um, last question, mate. For anyone listening to this who's um, thinking about going travelling, what's the one piece of advice that you give them? And actually, two questions. What's the one piece of advice you'd give them, and what country would you suggest someone goes to to start? Um, I mean, America's good. Um, if like this, the stereotypical American that we all have in our mind that's loud and speak, you know, over there it's it's different. Like it's. Yeah. They're not like they probably think the same about Aussies. Um, it, it, they America think we're all Paul Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> America would be good because there's just so much to see and do over there. And it's you know like from Texas, like we did a road trip from Louisiana up to Vegas as well, and like just the way the the country changes and the amount of like the difference in the people and and that sort of thing. Like it, it would be a good start. Um, and plus, everyone speaks English, obviously. Um, but for me, like favorite city would be Budapest or, or Barcelona in, yeah. in Europe. So any of those, um, like Hungary's really nice. Um, and then I found Scotland to be pretty, pretty up there as well. Like the whole UK, you can't go wrong with the UK either. Well, like I say, their tourism will go up, mate, on the back of this. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've got for you, mate. So yeah, it's been awesome. Well, sort of going- Going, going through your journey and like again I think one of the great things as I say to all people like a lot of people come on thinking oh you know what's someone going to get out of my story I think there's so many messages that people are going to get out of your story whether or not they're looking at traveling or whether it's someone even in a management position talking about how you work through that you know that really tough situation or somebody that, yeah. that has anxiety and stuff there's so many really good messages there and um I think you should write a book one day, mate, too. We've got, got a hell of a story to tell. We might just give him the transcript of this interview, just put it in the text. <laughs> it's funny you say that. One of the guys I work with over in Mauritania, he always said that. But I, I think with the travelling thing, like, if you get the chance to do it, it's only going to be, like, 
whether it's for a month, two months, whatever, if you want, you want to go and do it, I think everyone should do it. Yeah. Like I love, love that I grew up on the Northwest coast of Tassie. I love Alveston. I love Devonport and I love that area and I love the people from it, but I'm really glad that I moved from there yeah. and, and went and went and saw it. And if I ever, if I ever have children, I'll be making sure they learn another language. That's one thing I will be, we, yeah. we will be doing. Like, um, and that way, if they do decide to travel, then they've got a language to fall back on to go, like whether they want to go to France or whether they want to go yeah. to, like, you know, Spanish speaking countries or German speaking countries. Yeah. Um, they've got it. So, yeah. Awesome. No, it's a really Definitely. good message, mate. I think everyone should be encouraged to travel and certainly glad you did, mate, because it's made a hell of a, an interview and, and, and a hell of a journey for you. And yeah, I appreciate your time and hopefully we can catch up with you for a beer when you're home, mate. Yeah, definitely, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hopefully you've given away the skin. Don't go to Ben Lomond, boy. you do too much damage to yourself. <laughs> I don't think I'll go to Ben Lomond. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, mate. mate. What a life, eh? Imagine having all those experiences to talk around the campfire when you're old and grey. Like so many of our guests, you can learn so much through others' experiences and tough times they've endured. And even though Sean's lived a pretty exotic lifestyle, he's had some massive challenges to work through on the lessons he's learnt and the way he's dealt with tough times should hopefully help others too. It was a lot of fun to go through his journey. Thanks for listening and keep the suggestions coming for any great future stories. As Northwest Tassie is a remote area, I just want to quickly tell you about a great organisation doing their bit to help the rural community deal with mental health and suicide. Rural Alive and Well, or better known as RAW, R-A-W, have a mission to build healthy and resilient rural and remote communities to reduce the prevalence of suicide. RAW specialises in providing a proactive outreach and one-on-one support service, which addresses situational stresses and increases protective factors to minimise the risk of suicide. RAW is non-clinical, genuine and non-intrusive. The service is confidential with no fees for participants and it uses a person-centred shared goals approach. RAW adopts a culturally sensitive, strength-based and collaborative approach to delivering services. Their team come from a range of backgrounds and receive training and ongoing support to provide evidence-informed care to people. To access their services, call 1800 729 827 you can find them on Facebook and Instagram or jump on their website www.rawtas.com.au